Well, this is uh, one of my favorite weeks of the year, uh, as uh, tomorrow, uh, uh, Bruce and I and another uh, few men here from the church will be uh, traveling down to L.A. Uh, to go to the Shepherds Conference uh, at Grace Community Church. Uh, it's always the, the highlight uh, uh, pastorally in terms of uh, just a time to, to get away uh, for us to to be with other uh, men in uh, ministry, to get to sing, to hear uh, the word proclaimed. And I always uh, compare it uh, to a Disneyland for pastors uh, to get to go down uh, and participate in that. And so even though it's one of my favorite times uh, of uh, the year, uh, there is something I'm not looking forward to, and that is L.A. traffic. Uh, the traffic. And, it, and when you're coming uh, from Idaho uh, and you've been out of that traffic for a while, you, you go down into it and you immediately feel it. It's like this oppressive presence that's following you everywhere. You're like, why is everyone driving so fast? Uh, and even when I was living down there, one of my most frustrating uh, experiences, if I can be open and honest for a second, uh, is when you're driving on the freeway and there's an accident on the other side of the freeway. And it slows down traffic on your side, right? You're like, why? The, the accident is over there. Why are we slowing down here? And why is it that traffic slows down on the opposite side of the freeway? What does everyone want to do? They want to look. They want to see the carnage of what has taken place. And then everybody slows down. Uh, and then once you pass that, it naturally picks up. And uh, the same kind of principle is on display when we, when we see a crowd gathered together somewhere. We're out and about and we see a crowd over there. What do we immediately want to know? Well, what's going on over there? I want to go see. And we naturally, naturally gravitate. Now, there are there some introverts who are like, no, there's a crowd? Okay, I'm going the other way. Uh, but most of us will, will gravitate towards that crowd. Uh, and uh, we naturally have a, a curiosity to know what is taking place. What is it that's attracting this group of people to look upon this? And what are they looking at? There's something worthwhile uh, to see. There's a, a, a passage in 1 Peter, 1 Peter 1, uh, verses 10 through 12, that, that show us, so to speak, that there is a, a crowd of angels that gather around something. And what it is that they gather around and they're so fascinated by, what it is that they, that they long to look at, to try and understand, is our salvation. We're thinking about, for the angels, there was no chance at redemption. Right, when, when Satan rebelled against God and took a third of the angels with him, that was it for them. There was no opportunity to be saved beyond that, for them to be redeemed. There's no uh, angels that have rebelled against God who will turn back over and be reconciled to God. It's an amazing thing to think about, isn't it? And so those angels who have no chance at redemption, they, they look at and see the redemption of humanity through Jesus Christ. They look and see, wow, God became a man. They knew Jesus before the Incarnation. They say, wow, he, he became a man. He put on flesh and then went and lived a perfect life and then died to redeem humanity. Why, why would all of this take place? And then how does all of this take place? See, the angels are fascinated with our redemption. And if our salvation draws a crowd of angels, should it not also capture our attention? Shouldn't it also fascinate us? 
Shouldn't it be something that we constantly want to learn more about? To have a better understanding of what Christ has done on our behalf. And you could, in essence, divide this concept of our salvation, the doctrine of redemption, into two big categories. You can say that redemption is accomplished through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. That is is how our salvation is accomplished. But then, there's a whole other aspect of our salvation. Once it is accomplished, how is it now applied to us as believers? We have redemption accomplished and applied. And and within the application of redemption, there are are many things uh, that we can look at and gaze upon. You may not have ever thought of salvation as a a diamond that you can stare at and just look at and and behold the beauty of it. And every time you, you turn it another little way, you see more and more of how it sparkles, how the light captures it and how uh, its beauty shines forth. And the, the application of our redemption begins with God calling a people for himself, the doctrine of election. The application of redemption continues. And so those who are called according to God's will, the gospel has to get to them somehow. We can call that the external call or the, the gospel proclamation. Everyone who is saved is chosen by God, and then the gospel goes forth to them. There is an, an external call, and then there's something called an internal call. What we'll be discussing today, it's also known as the new birth or regeneration, where when the, when the gospel is proclaimed, there is a calling upon our hearts, and God works in our hearts to regenerate us. We are born again given a new heart. He's cleansed us and washed us, and now we are transformed. And then we turn in faith and repentance to Christ. And at that same time, that regeneration, uh, conversion, which is repentance and faith, uh, occur at the same time. Once that takes place, we are united with Christ, as we just sang. Galatians 2.20, that's my favorite verse in all of Scripture convicts me deeply every time I read it, but it's, it's powerful. I've been crucified with Christ, and it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. And there's a verse about our union with Christ, that we participate now in his life, his death, and his resurrection. Additionally, we are justified in that same moment, and we are adopted into the family of God. And then a lifelong process begins of sanctification, whereby we become more and more like our Savior, Jesus. And we persevere, continue on through the remainder of our life. And then when this life is complete, we have the doctrine of glorification, where we are with Christ in glory, new glorified bodies, no more Sickness, no more crying, no more sin, no more pain. That is all that we have to look forward to. Those are the the many facets of the application of our redemption. And as we saw last week in John chapter 3, verses uh, 1 to 21, we're we're only going to look at a few verses today, but 1 through 21 is a conversation between Jesus and Nicodemus. And their conversation is about the new birth or the doctrine of regeneration. And last week we just looked at verse 1. We we looked at verse 1 because it tells us about Nicodemus. And what we saw in Nicodemus is the best that Israel had to offer. 
right? Pharisee, member of the, the ruling Sanhedrin, the teacher of Israel. He was the best of the best, and yet Jesus is going to say to him, you've got to be born again. Everything that you've done will not get you into the kingdom of God. Not your accomplishments in religion, not your accomplishments in academics, and not your accomplishments in politics, not your, your outward external righteousness. None of that will get you in. But in the verses that we're going to look at this morning, verses 1 through 3, Nicodemus is going to be told that he is not saved, that he is not in the kingdom of God. He must be born again. This is going to be the first uh, interaction, the first dialogue the first round of words between these two men. And when Jesus is going to speak this morning, he's going to say, unless a man, one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And what he's really saying, what he's really speaking about is salvation. That's what it means to, to see the kingdom of God. And again, this should capture our attention. Whenever Jesus is in a conversation that speaks of how we are redeemed, how we are saved, we should long to come and gaze at that. That should draw a crowd of believers whenever Jesus speaks of our salvation. And so this this conversation between Jesus and Nicodemus is going to be on the most important topic that we could ever speak about, that we could ever contemplate how can we how can we see or enter into the kingdom of god how can we be saved how can we be made right with god and as we look at these three verses we're going to see the big picture of the entire conversation that's going to take place and in these verses we see who is inside the kingdom and who is outside and as we read these verses we'll make three discoveries about what it means how we go about entering into the kingdom because that should be a concern to all of us. But pause with me and let us read verses 1 through 3 in John chapter 3. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. So this, this first discovery that we'll make about entering the kingdom uh, is found in verse 1. And, and we won't spend much time on this first one because I discussed it last week. But the first discovery is that you can be outwardly righteous and still be outside the kingdom. You can be outwardly righteous and still outside of the kingdom. When we looked at this last week, we saw that again, Nicodemus is a Pharisee, the teacher of Israel, a member of the, the 70 person uh, Sanhedrin that was the highest court, the, was their, the Congress and the Supreme Court of Israel. And, and Nicodemus was a member of that court. He was outwardly religious in the same manner as the Apostle Paul later. And the Apostle Paul writes of his own accomplishments in Judaism. In Philippians 3, Paul says this. He says, Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, 
a persecutor of the church. As to righteousness under the law, he says, blameless. That was Paul's proclamation, his, what he said about himself as he was following the old order of apostate Judaism. He says, hey, I was blameless under that system. And the same would have been true for Nicodemus. And he did everything that he was outwardly, externally supposed to do in Judaism. But that doesn't mean that he was born again. He had no inner transformation. And if you're saying you're outwardly righteous, but on the inside you're, you're filthy and makes you a hypocrite. And that is the, the condemnation that ultimately Jesus gave to all of the Pharisees. If you, if you turn over with me to Matthew 23, and just looking, looking briefly at the Pharisees. Matthew 23, beginning in verse 13, Jesus says this to the Pharisees. He says, But woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, For you shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. For you neither enter yourselves nor allow those who would enter to go in. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. For you travel across sea and land to make a single proselyte. And when he becomes a proselyte, you make him twice as much a child of hell as yourselves. And if you jump down to verse 23. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. You blind guides, straining out a gnat and swallowing a camel. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, For you clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and the plate that the outside also may be clean. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones." And all uncleanness. So you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Jesus' assessment of the Pharisees as a whole is also applicable and true of Nicodemus. Nicodemus was outwardly righteous, but what does Jesus say about that? Hey, you look great on the outside. He compares them to whitewashed tombs. He says, hey, you look amazing, so beautiful, pristine on the outside, but on the inside, you're dead. That's what he is seeing here concerning Nicodemus. And again, Nicodemus is the best of the best, according to Israel at that time. And so Nicodemus was held up in verse 1 as the, the example, the representation of the old system of religion in Israel says, hey, all of that has to go. And he's a representative to all of us who try and make ourselves outwardly righteous to earn our salvation. We're never going to achieve that. And Nicodemus is the prime example. So we learn all of that about Nicodemus in John 3, verse 1. And he hasn't even said a word yet. Then in verse 2, he's going to speak, and we're going to learn more 
through his words. And we're going to learn even more about entrance into the kingdom. That first discovery we made last week, you can be outwardly righteous and still be outside the kingdom. And here in verse 2, we see a second discovery that you can be intellectually close and still be far from the kingdom. Look with me at verse 2. It says, This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. So we see that this man, Nicodemus, he came to Jesus by night. And there has been much discussion about why he comes at night. Many views on this. And some of what has been said is that he's, he's afraid. He's fearful of what others might say. So about him going and meeting with this upstart teacher of Jesus. And he was af- afraid of what others might say, but I don't necessarily think that was the case. That, that could play into it. But at the time, it was commonplace for rabbis to get together at night and talk. Because that was the best time to have a long stretch of uninterrupted time to speak about theology, to speak about the Word. So they gathered together. We saw this uh, a little bit uh, in chapter 1, verse 39, when, uh, when Andrew and John... Uh, meet Jesus for the first time. It's late in the evening and they, they're talking with him and then they go and they spend the rest of the night with him uh, conversing undoubtedly about things and they come, the conclusion that they come to after that evening with Christ is that, hey, this is the Messiah. And the next day they go out and they tell others and bring others to Jesus. So this was a common practice. And uh, so this was a common practice for rabbis to get together and speak at night. But as we've already seen, the Apostle John loves to use words and concepts that have multiple meanings. Uh, and, and we can say, oh, what does that mean? And usually when there's multiple meanings to something, John means them both. And over and over again, as we've already seen, he, he introdu- the Apostle John is going to introduce this theme of light and darkness to us. In the prologue, in John chapter 1, he says, Hey, uh, the light, speaking of Christ, came into the world and the world didn't receive it. The world loved darkness. They didn't love the light. And also throughout this gospel, John is going to use night and day to point to this dichotomy of light and darkness. So we've read this verse here in John chapter 3, verse 2. Keep your finger here and then turn over to John chapter 9. Look at some, some other examples of, of Jesus and John, the apostle, using day and night as pointing to other spiritual realities. Chapter 9, verse 4. Jesus speaking, We must w- work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. So again, there's a, it's day when Christ is there with him, but night and darkness is coming. Turn over again to chapter 11, verse 10. It says, but if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. Again, there's, a, there's deeper meanings here between night and day, light and darkness. And then uh, a final example, and one I think that is the, mo- the clearest of all of them, is uh, 13 verse 30. And this is after Jesus washes the feet of the disciples. 
And among those disciples whose feet he washes is Judas, the one who's going to betray him. And if you look in verse 29, so some thought Jesus is going to say, hey, this is who's going to betray me. Some thought that because Judas had the money bag, Jesus was telling him, buy what we need for the feast or that he should give something to the poor. Jesus is going to send Judas out. Verse 30, so after receiving the morsel of bread, he, speaking of Judas, he immediately went out. And then look at that statement that's kind of tacked on to, to the end there. And it was night. Why give us that detail there? Yeah, we already know that it's night. It's the Passover meal late in the evening. It's already introduced that to us. But again, pointing to when, when Judas leaves, he was there in the presence of the light. And yet, what has he chosen to do? Judas is the prime example of being it and beholding the light of Christ and yet choosing darkness. That is what we see here. As we go back to John chapter 3, I think there's a, uh, an intended meaning here that, yes, Nicodemus came by night. It might have been because he's fearful. More than likely, it's because he wanted uninterrupted time with Jesus to speak. But there's also a spiritual condition that John wants us to be aware of. Nicodemus is one of those who's intrigued by Jesus. He believes a little bit, but he utter, ultimately he is walking in spiritual darkness. And so Nicodemus comes to him and says, Rabbi, and this is a, a, a nice way of showing honor to Jesus. As, as Nicodemus is an older man, he comes and, and speaks to a younger man, Jesus, and he calls him rabbi, immediately putting them on equal ground. So he calls him rabbi, treating him as an equal. And then Nicodemus seems to be speaking not only on behalf of himself, but on behalf of others. Because he doesn't say, I know. He says, we know. So the question arises, who is he speaking for? It could be for other Pharisees, that some of the Pharisees were initially receptive to Jesus. I would bet that he's speaking on behalf of uh, himself and his disciples. Because more than likely... As Nicodemus came, he came with his disciples. And as Jesus is there, who's probably with Jesus as well? His own disciples. So this is a meeting of two rabbis and their disciples more than likely. That is a great possibility and likelihood here. And Nicodemus compliments Jesus. Hey, we know that you are a teacher come from God. Now, how does he know this? He says, no one, no one can do the signs that you do. And in the Greek, it's the signs that you are doing on a regular basis. These signs that you're doing, no one can do unless God is with him. And that's intended to be a compliment from Nicodemus to Jesus. He acknowledged, hey, Jesus, you are performing signs. And, be, and signs in the Old Testament were indicative that God was with somebody. So, so Nicodemus makes that assertion, hey, God is with you. In the same way that he was with Moses and he was with Jeremiah. Nicodemus is convinced that Jesus was not an ordinary teacher, but beyond that, he doesn't know. And he's not willing to make any assertion beyond, hey, you are a teacher who's come from God. But Nicodemus is he's intending to compliment, but his compliment is inadequate. Because to call the Son of God merely just a, a teacher falls far, far short. And many people love to, to come to Jesus in this way and speak about Jesus as a good human teacher, as a great moral philosopher. 
Many people compliment Jesus concerning his teachings, and uh, the famous German philosopher George Wilhelm Friedrich Hegel believed that Jesus' ethical teaching was the most perfect ethics ever spoken, and his Sermon on the Mount was the greatest thing ever said. So this, this German philosopher in the 19th century, very influential, says, man, Jesus is, is maybe the greatest human philosopher, has the most perfect ethics. Yet, in Hegel's work, The Life of Jesus, he emphasizes Jesus as a man and as a teacher. But he completely disregards Jesus as a miracle worker and as a son of God. He treats Jesus as a man born of human parents who had great insight into humanity, but nothing more than that. Hegel was a profound intellectual, and he knew so much and thought so deeply, and yet he was far from the kingdom. Intellectually close, he had a high opinion of Jesus, but he didn't see Jesus as Lord and Savior. There was another occasion at uh, our ascending church where uh, uh, a man came in uh, to the church. He was an exchange student, a philosophy student who had come, and I think he was studying at UCLA, uh, and he was enamored with the philosophy of Hegel just couldn't get enough of it. And uh, he'd come to our church uh, because as he was reading through Hegel's philosophy, Hegel spoke so highly about Christianity. And this man came and said, hey, I want to know more. So tell me about Christianity. So uh, Pastor Bruce was there that day. So he was the one who had a long conversation uh, with him about what Christianity was. Uh, and so after a you know, multiple hour conversation with Bruce, I think a couple of days later he came back and I spoke with him for an extended period of time. Uh, and then he, I invited him to come to our, our small group on Sunday. I said, hey, come, why don't you just uh, see what uh, Christianity is about? You can uh, hear what we believe uh, and how we live out our faith. And uh, over and over again in our conversations, we, we tried to impress the, the urgency of the gospel to him. And, and no matter what we said, he kept taking everything that we said and evaluating it according to uh, what Hegel said. So, oh, that's the, uh, I, I see how, what, what it means here. And, oh, yeah, that, that sounds a lot like what Hegel said in this book or d- different things. And it was amazing that throughout all of these conversations, even as we're, we're speaking to him about Christ, Jesus never became more to him than a moral philosopher. Just one in a long line of philosophers, because that's really what philosophers do. They take a philosopher that came before them, and they take what he did and rework it a little bit slightly, and then they, they just continue to build. And that's how he treated Jesus, just as a good moral teacher. Yet he never, never accepted Christ as Lord and Savior, even though we, we continue to, to press that urgency. And even though he, he rationally and intellectually agreed with Christianity, he would not submit to Christ. That is what we see here with Nicodemus. That is how he approaches Jesus that night. He saw him as a teacher come from God, but nothing more. And there there was one thing that was commendable about Nicodemus, and that was that he came. That's always the first step. You You must go to Jesus. He wanted to know more. He was curious. But there's a, there's a deeper and bigger question. that we've, we've asked, why did he come at night? But we've, we've left out, why did he come at all? Because again, Nicodemus is the teacher in Israel. Why is he going 
to speak to this young teacher who's just come onto the scene? Why is he going to ask questions and speak with Jesus? Well, the the text makes it clear that he was intrigued by the signs that Jesus was performing. Those had gotten his attention. But here's something else, and it's going to become clear in Jesus' response to Nicodemus. But I think think everything that, that Jesus would later condemn the Pharisees for, he would condemn them for their hypocrisy, I think Nicodemus already felt that. I think he already understood that he had done all of these external things. He had done everything that his religion had asked him to do, and yet he knew that he still hadn't arrived. He understood that, I think, internally. He saw his own hypocrisy, and I think it ate away at him. He had reached the the top of the ladder and realized that there was nothing there. Now, when I was uh, in college living in the middle of nowhere, small town in New Mexico. Uh, my friends and I would kind of plan things out. We're going to go on an excursion. We're going to go out and go hiking, or we're going to go to this restaurant in this town uh, a little bit down the road because there's nothing close to where we lived. Uh, and this is before smartphones. Uh, and because we're young college students, we, don't, we didn't always look into the details. Uh, and sometimes we would make these grand plans and then go somewhere only to find out that the restaurant was closed on Sundays. But we would do all of this and get there, and we had a, a term for that. We called it a burnt mission. Uh, we, we did all of this stuff, all of these, uh, all this endeavor, all this work to get there, and then it didn't plan out the way that we wanted to. And that was deflating. You're like, oh, man, what a waste of time. And I think Nicodemus has come to that conclusion, but it's not just that he went to a restaurant and found that it was closed. It's that he has invested his entire life in this religious system and it hasn't provided for him what he expected it to. Still hasn't given him assurance that he will enter the kingdom. It hasn't transformed his life. It's, it's made him look good on the outside, but he knows on the inside he is still spiritually dead. I think that's why he is coming to him. He's intellectually close, but he is still far from the kingdom. And I think he's beginning to notice that. But not everybody does notice that when they're intellectually close, that they are still far from entering into the kingdom. Some will will echo wholeheartedly, yes, Jesus is my my Lord. Jesus is this. They'll, They'll agree with things in Scripture, but then... What they really believe is demonstrated by their actions. Many people are willing to compliment Jesus, to say great things about him. Many people try to follow the teachings of Christ through their own efforts. And they even feel they have achieved an adequate level of righteousness. So here's something to keep in mind. What Nicodemus did with the Old Testament and the the teachings of the Old Testament, we can also do with the teachings of Christ. We can try and and go through all of the motions. We can try and look great on the outside. Check off all of the boxes and yet still be far from the kingdom. We can still be spiritually dead on the inside. And what we see here is that there are really just two categories of people. That there are those who are born again and those who are not. And knowing facts about Jesus doesn't put you in the born-again category. 
You can know so many things about Christ and still not truly know Him. You can be intellectually close and still far from the kingdom. So then we have to ask, what is Jesus to us? What do we believe about Jesus? And then what do we do in response to that? That is the call. That is the, the question that we must ask of ourselves from this passage. If we wish to see the kingdom, if you have desired to have eternal life, Christ must be beheld and believed in, as we've already seen in the Gospel of John. And so what we've seen so far, these two discoveries that we've made, is that you can be outwardly righteous and still be outside the kingdom. You can be intellectually close and still be far. That tells us, I guess, how not to get into the kingdom. And then Jesus speaks, and he's going to inform us how, how we can enter the kingdom. And this is in verse 3. This is the, the third discovery that we can make, that you must, you must be supernaturally reborn from above to enter the kingdom. Look at me at verse 3. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And some of you might be thinking, because I know this was my initial thought and response, of why does Jesus say that? Like, Nicodemus didn't ask that. He didn't come with that question of, hey, how can I enter the kingdom? But Jesus answers him as if he did. It's like Jesus answers and no question was asked. But again, we must remember that that Jesus has a perfect knowledge of the human heart. That was the end of chapter 2, which was, again, the introduction to this conversation. Jesus doesn't need anybody to testify about what takes place in our hearts. He's fully aware all the time. And so Jesus is going to guide this conversation where it really needs to go. He's answering the question that Nicodemus really came for. One pastor says, The Lord answered not his words, but his thoughts. The Lord answers to questions will be found generally to reveal the true thoughts of the questioner and to be fitted to guide him to the truth which he is seeking. That's what Jesus does here. Nicodemus hasn't asked it, but Jesus knows this is really what you came for. So let's just go right there. Let's, let's cut down all of the, the small talk and get right to what you came to find out about. And there's also a subtle wordplay here uh, that's more obvious in the Greek than it is in the English. There's certain words uh, that Nicodemus uses that Jesus is going to echo. Uh, and uh, what's obvious is the word for unless. And then uh, the word in the Greek for the idea of being able to do something, having the, the power to do something. And it's translated in our English translations as... You can't. Okay? And so both of them are going to make a statement, hey, unless something happens, you can or cannot do something. They both speak about what is and is not humanly possible. And if I can paraphrase to show you the, the parallelism in their statements, Nicodemus came to Jesus and made an assertion. Nicodemus says, it is not humanly possible for a man to perform these signs unless God is with him. And Jesus is in essence saying, if you really want to talk about what is humanly impossible... Let's talk about it. Jesus' response to Nicodemus is really saying, it is not humanly possible for a man to see the kingdom of God unless he is reborn from above. That is Jesus' response to him. And as he begins his response, he says, truly, truly, which is amen and amen. 
Kind of contrary to what Nicodemus says. Nicodemus says, hey, we know this to be true. And Jesus is coming back. Well, let me tell you what is really true. Let me tell you how it is. And Jesus continued, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. That word for born is where we get our word generate or generation. What is brought forth to give birth to means to become a parent. And Greeks make, the Greek makes it clear that this is not something that we do. This is something that happens to us. It's in the passive voice, meaning that we're not the one who performs the action. We're the one who receives the action. So there's this emphasis that, that in regeneration, man is passive. He receives salvation. He doesn't earn salvation. And it's further emphasized when, by that little word again. You must be born again. And that's a, a Greek word. Again, has a double meaning. It can mean again or anew. And you might have a little footnote that you see in the, in the ESV that says, or it can also mean from above. Again, this is where John loves to use these types of words. And Nicodemus in verse 4, you see he interprets it as again. You must be born again. Nicodemus is questioned. Well, how can a man be born when he's old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Well, no. The word means again. But also, if you if you look over in this same chapter, verse thirty-one. Verse thirty-one says, "He who comes from above is above all." That is the same word there in verse thirty-one. So it shows us there is a a double meaning intended here, that you must be reborn from above by the Spirit of God. That is, in essence, the full weight of what Jesus is saying to Nicodemus. And again, this is echoing what what John has already introduced us to in John chapter 1, verse 13, where he speaks of all who believe becoming who were born, not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. That those who entrust Christ, those who believe, are reborn. But here, being born again is the prerequisite to seeing the kingdom of God. Nobody sees the kingdom without being born again. Again, what is meant by the kingdom of God here? Uh, the idea is more uh, easily understood. The, the kingdom of, of salvation. The, many things regarding the kingdom of God in Scripture. And you could say that that is the central theme of the entire Bible. And that's a big theme in the other three Gospels, but this is the only time it's mentioned here in John's Gospel, here in verse 3 and then in verse 5. So it really points to this idea of being a part of God's kingdom, the realm of salvation. If you want to enter into that realm, you must be born again. If you want eternal life, you must be born again. And I know as I, as I say that, it's, it, it might kind of flow right past you because we are so used to hearing those words, right? To be born again has become synonymous with being a Christian, which is good because every Christian is born again. So, so that's a good thing. But oftentimes, because it's so familiar, it's lost its power. Uh, it, it's lost the seriousness and the weight of what it truly means. So... Just for fun, I, I googled how to be born again. 
right? It's always fun to do some Google searches. Uh, and if, if you do that, you're going to find a whole bunch of articles on how to be born again. And, and one website had a particularly long list of steps, and I'll, I'll read them to you. It said, hey, believe in God and in his son, Jesus Christ. Accept Jesus Christ as your personal Savior. Repent of your sins. And then fourth, I, I love and hate this one because it's, it's true, but I don't like it. It says, join a church if you want a religious community. It's like, no, that's not necessarily optional for the believer. We're, we're called to, to go and be a part of the church. Uh, that says, hey, get baptized by an ordained minister, uh, which is not really the case. And then number six, it says, receive the spirit by welcoming him into your heart. So they got that one way off, and I'll talk about that in a second. But what this website did is they equated living or the Christian life with being born again. And we, and we can't confuse those two. They, they relegated the Spirit's working to the end of the list when it should have been at the beginning. And here's something that we have to understand. You can't live the Christian life without first being born again. That has to happen first. Martin Lloyd-Jones, love this. He, He says, this is the danger of seeking sanctification before we know anything at all about regeneration. Or to put it more simply, it is the mistake of trying to grow before you have been born. It sounds ridiculous, and yet that is the very thing that so many are trying to do. They are trying to develop, they are trying to grow and increase, but they do not have any life. That's the very issue that Jesus is addressing here with Nicodemus. Nicodemus, you've been trying to sanctify yourself, but you don't have life. You haven't been born again. So your efforts are going to lead you nowhere. Nicodemus has been trying to accomplish what only God can accomplish. Jesus is saying to Nicodemus, it is humanly impossible for him to see the kingdom of God in his own efforts. He's going to see the kingdom. It's going to be through a supernatural act of God working in his heart, not through something that he does. Some of you might object to to what's being taught here. This idea that salvation is out of our hands and in the hands of the Lord completely. Don't we, don't we play a role in that? Earlier I mentioned all of these theological concepts in the, the application of our redemption. And I would say, yes, we play a role in our conversion and our repentance and faith. That is something that God enables us to do. We have to do that. But when it comes to regeneration, we play no part whatsoever. That God must transform us on the inside. And so even though regeneration and conversion occur simultaneously and instantaneously, logically, regeneration precedes conversion. So our repentance and faith at the time of our conversion is a result of regeneration, not the cause of it. Because if we are spiritually unable to respond to God, if we are dead in our sins, only God can make us spiritually alive. That's what we're going to see later on in this passage in a couple of weeks. A great quote from a theologian named John Murray. 
says, it has often been said that we are passive in regeneration. This is true and proper, for it is simply the precipitate of what our Lord has taught us here. We may not like it. We may recoil against it. It may not fit into our way of thinking. And it may not accord with the time-worn expressions which are the coin of our evangelism. But if we recoil against it, we do well to remember that this recoil is recoil against Christ. And what shall we answer when we appear before him whose truth we rejected and with whose gospel we tampered? We are passive in regeneration. That's why Jesus chose the illustration of birth. Right? How many of you chose when you would be born, where you would be born, whom you would be born to? None of us. We didn't play a role in our physical birth, and we don't play a role in God transforming our hearts and regenerating us, giving us new life. That is what Jesus is confronting Nicodemus with. And in one sentence, he sweeps away everything that Nicodemus had built his life upon. It's all that gone. It's worthless. You must be born again. And why does God want Nicodemus to understand that? And why do we need to understand that as well? Because it seems to be that we could could despair from this truth. Well, if God is the one who does that, what in the world am I supposed to do? What hope is there? I'm just in his hands. Well, that that is the intended point. That is the emphasis. That salvation belongs completely to God. We read that in Jonah. Did you remember that from this, this week's reading, Jonah 2.9? Salvation belongs to the Lord. All of it. And that, that emphasis, that, that regeneration, what gives us a new heart, that new birth is completely an act of God that is intended to show us, to humble us, To show that we are not just in need of help, but that we are completely helpless. Because there's a difference between those two. Again, it's not Jesus, I need a boost, but Jesus, I am lost without you. That is the emphasis here. But even in this emphasis, when we look at it and see this, this understanding that we are totally unable to save ourselves, what that does, it also removes any grounds of boasting. There's no reason for us to say, God chose me and he really, he picked his team well, right? No, there's no room for boasting. Listen to, to the end of 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Paul speaks to the Corinthian church, which is being divided into factions. And he's trying to, to point back and say, no, this should humble you and this should unite you. The fact that there's nobody who's greater. Jesus didn't choose us because we were so great. Listen to why Jesus chose us. As for consider your calling, brothers, not many of you who were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful, not many were of noble birth, but God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. 
Now listen to this. And because of him, speaking of God the Father, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Salvation being holy in God's hand removes any reason for us to boast. What are we to boast about? God did something for us. No, we boast in him. And even in this conversation with Nicodemus, can it last from verse 1 to verse 21? Jesus is going to speak about and emphasize man's complete inability here on the front end to try and humble Nicodemus, help him to see that he is completely helpless. But then look at verses 14 through 16. There is also at the same time an urging and a call for Nicodemus to do what? To look to Jesus in faith. That's, that's what has to accompany this type of message of how helpless we are must always be accompanied by how great Christ is. Look at verse 14. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. And then verse 16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. And here's the tension in Scripture that we will always see. That salvation is holy of God, but then what are we called to do? We're called to believe. We're called to trust. We're called to look in faith. That is the intended response to the doctrine of regeneration. Faith in those who have not yet believed and in those who have believed. Thanksgiving and praise for what God has done. And as this morning, we've looked at these, these, these three discoveries. that You can be outwardly righteous and still outside the kingdom. You can be intellectually close and still far from the kingdom. And then... You must be supernaturally reborn from above to enter that kingdom, that realm of salvation. And you cannot live the Christian life until you have spiritual birth. What is the emphasis here? There was a, once a, a bishop uh, in the Church of England named John Taylor Smith, and he was uh, formerly a chaplain uh, in the general uh, or the, in the British Army. And on one occasion, he was preaching in a large cathedral, and he was preaching from John 3, 7, which says, Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. And in order to drive home his point, he says, My dear people, do not substitute anything for the new birth. You may be a member of a church. says, Even the great church of which I am a member, the historic Church of England, but church membership is not new birth. And except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And the, the rector, which is a, an English term for a, a clergyman who oversees a, a cathedral or a parish, the, the rector was sitting at his left, and, and in this sermon he points to this and says, You're clergyman. You can be a clergyman like this man right here, my friend, and you cannot be, it may be that you are not born again. Because except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And then he turns to the other side. He points to the, the head deacon. He says, you might even be an archdeacon like my friend here and not be born again. And except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. So he's preaching this sermon. And then a day or so later, he receives a letter from the archdeacon. 
This is what the archdeacon says. He says, my dear bishop, you have found me out. I have been a clergyman for over 30 years, but I have never known anything of the joy that Christians speak of. I never could understand it. Mine has been a hard legal service. I did not know what was the matter with me. But when you pointed directly to me and said, you might even be an archdeacon and not be born again, I realized in a moment what the trouble was. I had never known anything about the new birth. And in that letter, he went on to say that he was wretched and miserable. And he had been unable to sleep all night and he begged for a conference if the bishop could spare the time to speak with him. And the next day they got together over the word of God and after some hours they were both on their knees. The archdeacon understanding his utter helplessness as a poor lost sinner and telling Christ that he would trust him as Savior. And that might be your experience this morning. Again, being a part of the church and doing Christian things does not necessarily mean that you are born again. You might be here this morning feeling the same way that that archdeacon did, wretched and miserable, searching for, for hope, for meaning. You may feel the same way as Nicodemus because you've been spinning your wheels and realizing you're not getting anywhere. And if you're here this morning, I would, I would beg and, and plead for you to come and speak to me. Come speak to Bruce, speak to any one of our deacons if you want to know more about what that means to be born again. What it means to look to Christ in faith and then to follow him for the remainder of your days. Let us tell you more about the new birth because... As Jesus said, unless a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Let's pray. Sovereign God, Lord, what a, what a profound passage of Scripture. Lord, we thank you for its truths. We thank you for saving us, for giving us that experience of the new birth. Lord, not because we earned it, not because we are so good, Lord, but because we are helpless. And Lord, this passage shows us that. Our desperate need for you, our complete inability give ourselves spiritual life. And Lord, how glorious is this doctrine of our redemption applied to us. And Lord, what hope and what assurance it brings because if salvation belongs to you, then we can't mess it up. It is in your hands and you will save us and you will Sanctify us. You will make us a people who are pure and devoted to you, zealous for good works. And Lord, I pray that you would help us to understand the depth of this doctrine of regeneration. 
that we would turn to you in praise and thanksgiving, that it would remove any semblance of boasting in our hearts, in our minds, in our words. Lord, may it increase our worship of you. Lord, if there, there would be any here today who have been trying to grow as a Christian without first being born, Lord, I pray that you would that you would work in their hearts, that you would grant them regeneration, that you would enable them to turn in faith to Christ. You would glorify your name by saving those who can never save ourselves. Lord, may you work in us and through us, and may we go forth and proclaim this message, not that people need to clean up their acts, not that they need to try harder, but that unless a man is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Lord, may you work in our hearts so that we all may enter into that kingdom and behold you in your glory. We ask this in Jesus' name.